Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focused topic, and through the YJBM podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. Recently, YJBM worked with the Yale Science Diplomats, a scientific outreach group, to host an event centered around our recent death issue, which was published in December of 2019. This event, Science at Brewery, featured a series of short, easily understandable talks about a topic of broad interest, in this case, death. We are releasing a modified version of these talks here in this edition of our podcast. My name is Emma Carley, and I'm a second-year graduate student in the Cell Biology Department and will be your first speaker for today's podcast. Our second speaker is Elizabeth Nand, a second-year student in the Microbial Pathogenesis Department. Our third speaker is Mike Bond, a fourth-year student in the Pharmacology Department. And our fourth speaker is Amanda Lease, a sixth-year student in the, anthrop- in the Anthropology Department. Okay, so like I said before, my name is Emma, and I will be um, talking to you all today about cell death, and specifically how cell death is a really important part of life. So cells are the basic building blocks of life. Everything is, all living things are made up of cells. There are some organisms that are unicellular, meaning that they are made up of only one cell. An example of a unicellular organism is Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and the everyday term for this organism is budding yeast. And budding yeast are the type of yeast that are used to brew beer. Um, Some organisms are multicellular. We humans are an example of multicellular organisms, and this means that we have lots of different types of cells that all work together to create one full functioning organism. So we have brain cells, muscle cells, stomach cells, blood cells, just to name a few, and all of these cells work together to make you. So let's, so you know, we're talking about cell death today, and if our unicellular organism friends were to say have their one cell die, that would be it. That would be the end of the organism. Um, But for multicellular organisms, cell death is not as big of an issue um, in some cases because we have a lot of cells working together. And in fact, cell death is a very important part of life as a multicellular organism. So cells are constantly dying in multicellular organisms. Um, A day-to-day example of this is that um, our skin, which is made up of lots and lots of cells, is constantly shedding. So those are cells that have died and are flaking off the top. Um, And this is really important to maintain the integrity of your skin and to maintain its health. And so if you were to cut a slice out of your skin and look at it sort of sideways, Um, you would see that the bottom layer of your skin is made up of young, new cells. And as the cells move up towards the top layer of your skin, they get older and older and eventually die. And so um, our skin is turning over or you get sort of fresh cells at the top every 10 to 30 days, which is pretty cool. Um, Lots of other cells in our body are also turning over like this. Um, Every four months, we have fresh red blood cells that carry oxygen to our entire body. Um, The cells that line our stomach are in a really harsh environment, and so they turn over every two to nine days. Um, But there are some cells that we have for a lifetime. Um, An example of this are our neurons. And so the neurons that you have when you're born are the neurons that you will have forever. And this is why diseases such as neurodegenerative disorders which lead to the death of these neurons, are really debilitating because we can't replace those neurons once they're gone. And so what I'd like to talk to you about today is that cell death is actually a really critical part of life in multicellular organisms. Um, Cell death is important at the beginning, during the development of these organisms, and it's important all the way throughout life to prevent disease. So um, to start off, I'm going to first talk about how cells die. And so, you know, a cell is basically a bag of stuff. And so an intuitive way to think about how a cell might die is that this bag just opens and explodes. And, 
you know, you're left with nothing. You're left with a dead cell. And this is one of the ways in which cells die. The scientific term for this is necrosis. And um, what happens during necrosis is that you have a healthy cell that has been exposed to some sort of a stress, such as a poison or high temperatures or lack of oxygen, just to name a few. And as a result, the cell will swell. And um, all cells are encased by something called the membrane. And when the cells swell big enough, the membrane will pop like a balloon. And the cell contents will spill out everywhere. And this actually isn't a good thing because some of those cellular contents will then go and damage other surrounding parts of the tissue. Um, And this can lead to inflammation and tissue damage. So while this exploding um, or this necrosis is something that happens in our body, um, it's not the best way for our cells to die. And so our body has come up with a different type of cell death that will prevent this sort of catastrophic damage to the organism. And this type of cell death is called apoptosis or programmed cell death. And so apoptosis is sort of this intentional targeted killing of cells. And 50 to 70 billion of our cells die every day due to apoptosis. But don't worry, you are made up of 32.7 trillion cells. And so this means that only about 0.2% of your cells die every day due to apoptosis. So during apoptosis, um, you have a healthy cell, and for some reason, the body wants to get rid of it. And so um, apoptosis is initiated. And during apoptosis, the cells will shrink and they will start to bleb, which is a scientific term, which basically means that the cell starts to break off into little packets and little pieces. And the important thing here is that that membrane that encloses our cells never breaks. All the cell contents stay contained in these little packets, and eventually they're eaten up by other cells through a process called phagocytosis. So basically there are other cells that will come along sort of like Pac-Man and chew up these little balls and digest them um, so that you can use the components of those cells for other things. Um, So since the cell membrane never breaks during apoptosis, you don't get the devastating inflammation that you get with necrosis. And so our body likes to have cells die via apoptosis instead of necrosis. So now that we have a better idea about how cells die, I'd like to talk about why this cell death is important. So apoptosis was actually first described in the context of development, and apoptosis is really important during the development of multicellular organisms. Um, Apoptosis was first described specifically during the development of C. elegans, which is a type of nematode worm that scientists use a lot to understand various basic biology questions. Um, And so because C. elegans is a very simple animal, we know a lot about it. In fact, we know the exact way that these C. elegans go from an embryo to a full worm, and we know the fate of every single cell that is made during this process. So we know that exactly 1,090 cells are created during the development of C. elegans, And more importantly, we know that exactly 131 of these cells undergo apoptosis. So a scientist can watch a worm developing and say, oh, I know exactly which of these cells are going to die because the exact same 131 cells die every single time. And so by noticing that, you know, the cells die exactly the same every single time via apoptosis, scientists realize The apoptosis is an intentional process that's highly regulated in cells. So apoptosis is also very important in human development, and a great example of this is in development of our limbs, our arms, and our legs. And so um, if you look at your hands and your feet, uh, most of us have individual fingers and toes, and our limbs didn't start out that way. Um, When we were embryos, Our limbs actually started off as a limb bud, which is sort of just this round ball that slowly grows out from where your shoulders and your hips eventually are um, to create your arms and your legs. And so once this limb bud sort of starts to reach what will become your hands and your feet, um, cells begin to selectively start dying sort of in between what will become your fingers. And so this cell death is apoptosis. And... um, 
our body is able to very tightly control which cells are going to be dying this way so that we can properly make all of our fingers and all of our toes. And so if you look at your fingers um, and your toes, you can see that there's some webbing in between them. And this is these are the cells you know, that were sort of at the edge of um, what were and were not going to die. And so some people have more webbing between their fingers than others, which means that not as many of their cells underwent apoptosis during development. So not only is cell death really important for development of multicellular organisms, but it's also really important to maintain their health and to prevent disease. So apoptosis can prevent lots of different diseases. Um, today I'm specifically going to talk about the role of apoptosis in preventing cancer and in preventing infection by viruses. So first I'll talk about cancer. Um, cancer is uncontrolled cell growth. Um, basically something happens to these cells and they grow out of control and they form a tumor. Um, and this can cause very devastating effects to the surrounding tissues and ultimately the person gets very ill. The trigger for cancer is mutations that arise in DNA. And so just to break that down, DNA is the genetic code that um, gives all the information that your cells need to make you, to make an organism. So it has all the information to make a full person. This information can be mutated or changed due to various outside things. Um, an example of this is in skin cancer. Um, UV radiation from the sun can um, damage the DNA in your skin and cause some sort of a mutation that could lead to cancer. So there are different types of mutations that can occur. Um, you can get breaks in the DNA where it literally gets cut in half and chopped up, or you can have changes in this information. So another type of mutation is um, that the actual information encoded in your DNA can be changed. And as you can imagine, this would lead to very, could potentially lead to catastrophic um, issues in the cells. And so these mutations are basically what leads to uncontrolled cell growth. So our body has ways of dealing with this to make sure that cells that are mutated don't necessarily become cancer. Um, and so apoptosis is really important to remove sick cells. Inside of our bodies, um, inside of all of our cells, um, there's this sort of DNA house called the nucleus that protects all of our DNA from potential damages. Inside of the nucleus, there are lots of different factors that are constantly surveilling the DNA to see if it's damaged or not. And one of these factors is called P53. And P53 is actually really, really important in cancer biology. It's called the guardian of the genome. Um, it protects us from cancer, and a lot of cancers um, are usually somehow associated with P53. So in healthy cells, P53 is looking around the DNA, looking for damage. And if it spots damage, it tells the cell, hey, stop growing. Can we fix this damage? And if the cell says no, then P53 says, okay, we need to initiate apoptosis and kill this cell to make sure that it doesn't become cancerous. But cancer cells are able to cheat death by um, messing with P53. So sometimes cancer cells have P53 that's a little messed up. It's the wrong shape, for example. Um, and so it can't read DNA anymore. It can't do its job. It can't find those breaks. And so when the cell says, hey, P53, is everything okay? P53 is like, I don't know. I can't really tell if anything's up um, because the cancer has sort of made it wonky. Um, there are other types of cancers where P53 is just gone. And so when the cell checks in and says, hey, is everything okay? It doesn't get a reply. And so sort of in response to this wonky or missing P53, the cell's like, okay, I guess everything's fine, and it just keeps growing, and that is what ultimately leads to cancer. So these sort of surveilling factors are really important to identify cells that need to undergo apoptosis so that they don't become cancer in the future. Okay, so um, apoptosis is also important to prevent illnesses that arise due to other factors, for example, viruses. So a brief intro to how viruses work. Um, basically, viruses will come into your body and infect your cells and make them sick. And what this means is that the virus will basically hijack the cell and turn it into a virus factory that will spew out more viruses that can go and infect more cells in your body. And ultimately, this is what is going to make you ill. 
Our body has various mechanisms to get rid of cells that have been infected by viruses. And one of these um, mechanisms is another type of cell that's sort of a defense cell. They're called natural killer cells. Natural killer cells are a type of white blood cell, so they're circulating in your blood. And white blood cell, and this uh, natural killer cell will look for various cells that might be under attack by viruses. How does it know what to look for? Well, cells have these signals on the outside that say, I'm healthy, everything's fine, you know, you don't need to kill me, I'm not a virus factory. But when a cell becomes infected by a virus, the signals on the outside of the cell change and it says, hey, there is something wrong here, um, I'm infected by a virus, you need to kill me. And so the natural killer cell can recognize this signal on these virally infected cells and will induce apoptosis in those cells to prevent the spread of the virus. So overall, um, I hope that you've learned that cells can die via multiple mechanisms. They can die via necrosis or apoptosis, but the apoptosis is really the mechanism by which um, cells can die in a very intentional way that does not cause further damage to the body. And apoptosis is really critical for development of multicellular organisms and to maintain the health of these organisms by preventing diseases. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Nand, and as Emma mentioned, I am a second-year graduate student in the Department of Microbial Pathogenesis. Today I'm going to be talking to you about a deadly poison, or really two of them. So before I begin, I want to pose to you a question. What do water, antifreeze, Botox, and uranium have in common? So think about that for a second. It may seem a little weird. But in fact, all four of these things are poisons. Now you might be saying, water is a poison? Yes, yes it is. And we'll dive into how and why in a, in a little bit. But first, we have to define what is a poison. So a poison is a substance that is capable of causing the illness or death of a living organism when introduced or absorbed. There are many kinds of poisons, but broadly they fall into the categories of natural, chemical, or radiological. But what's critically important about poison is that everything is poisonous, just the dose makes the poison. So Paracelsus, who is the father of toxicology, who lived from 1493 to 1541, he said that everything is poison, there is poison in everything, only the dose makes a thing not a poison. And that's super important for how we measure poisons, how we measure the, how poisonous something actually is. So we use the measure called LD50 to measure a poison. And LD50 stands for lethal dose 50%. That is the amount of a substance per body weight in kilograms that will kill 50% of the test population. For reference, the average adult American male weighs 90 kilograms, while the average adult American female weighs 77 kilograms. So LD50 is calculated from a graph. So basically what happens is scientists will take a test population of usually mice. They will take their toxin of interest and then they will inject the mice with increasing doses of that toxin. So they'll start with zero and then they'll go up to a dose at which all of the mice die. They then get a graph that looks like a curve. They can calculate at what dose 50% of the population died, and then that will give them the LD50. An example of an LD50 is for palytoxin, a marine chemical toxin, and the LD50 for palytoxin is 599.3 micrograms per kilogram. What that means is that 599.3 micrograms per kilogram of body weight is enough to kill 50% of the population. To put that into context for humans, that means a, about a quarter cup of palytoxin will kill an average adult human. So let's go back to that original question that I posed about water, antifreeze, Botox, and uranium. Well, how much of each of these things is enough to kill you? What are their LD50s? Well, the LD50 of water is 90 milliliters per kilogram. To put that into context, that means that you would need to drink two gallons of water all at once without pausing to die of water poisoning. And that seems a little silly because it is a little silly. And that's why we don't usually consider water poisonous. However, the LD50 for antifreeze is much more reasonable. The LD50 is 1.4 milliliters per kilogram, and that means that you would only need to drink one and a half cups of antifreeze. That means that a large glass of antifreeze is enough to kill you. 
Botox, on the other hand, has an LD50 of one nanogram per kilogram. And if that sounds low, it's because it is very, very low. The LD50 of uranium is five grams per kilogram, which means that you would need to eat 1.5 cups of uranium to die. I don't know why you would ever do that, but there it is. So now you might be thinking, well, okay, that's great, but what should I know about poisons? And I think there are five things that you should know about poisons. The first being, how do I get it? The second being, what does it do? Then how much will kill you? How long do you have if you get poisoned? And can you fix it? And we're going to go through these five questions for two different poisons. But before we go through that, we need to establish another definition. And this definition is that of a toxin. So you might have heard the word toxin before in the context of smoothies or tea. But the word toxin actually has a scientific definition. A toxin is an antigenic poison or venom of plant or animal origin, especially one produced by or derived from microorganisms and causing disease when present at low concentration in the body. So what's really important here is that a toxin is produced by plant or animal. And natural strictly means produced by nature. So there are actually two kinds of toxin. There are poisons and venoms. A poison is when an organism produces a toxin that causes harm when eaten or absorbed. So think a poison dart frog. A venom is when an organism produces a toxin that causes harm when injected. So think a snake like the black mamba. Now that we've established some definitions, we can move on to our first poison. And this one is botulinum toxin. So it's produced by the common soil bacterium called Clostridium botulinum. And it is the most poisonous substance on Earth. Hands down, no one debates this. The LD50 is one nanogram per kilogram. That, To put that into context, that means that a crystal of botulinum toxin the size of a grain of sand is enough to kill around 9,600 people. So botulinum toxin causes the disease botulism. But how do you get botulism? Well, most exposures to botulinum toxin come through improperly canned food. Babies can also get botulism from honey. So now I don't want you to sit here being terrified of canned food and honey because there are fewer than 1,000 cases per year of botulism. When it does occur, it usually happens because the cans that the food was preserved in were not sterilized properly. And with honey, only babies can get botulism from honey because the spores or the dormant forms of the, the bacterium, they can survive in honey. But adult immune systems are developed enough to clear the spores before they start producing botulinum toxin. Babies, on the other hand, have immune systems that aren't quite as developed, which means that the spores can germinate and can give the babies botulism. So you shouldn't feed honey to babies under 12 months. However, adults are fine. But what does botulism actually do? Well, botulism causes a limp paralysis. Symptoms usually begin between 18 and 36 hours after ingestion. The cause of death is asphyxiation, and that means you can't breathe. So I said that botulism causes a limp paralysis, but why is that? Well, to put it briefly, your neurons work by transmitting messages in the form of neurotransmitters from cell to cell. Botulinum toxin prevents the cells from sending those messages, which means that your nerves can't fire. So, what, so botulinum toxin comes in and it, and it prevents your nerves from talking to each other. This causes the limp paralysis. So the good news is that there is an antitoxin for botulism, and supportive care along with the antitoxin are very effective in treating the disease. So what the antitoxin does is it binds to the free botulinum toxin, and it prevents it from doing any further damage. Unfortunately, the antitoxin does not reverse damage that's already been done. So if you are unfortunate enough to contract botulism, you will need supportive care until your symptoms subside. But the good news is, is that with modern care, the death rate of botulism has dropped from 50% to only 5%. So before I move on, I want to tell you a really, really cool story that I found while I was researching this, and that is about a horse. And you might be thinking, why does a horse have anything to do with botulism? So in the late 1960s, there was a horse, and its name was First Flight. And this 
horse was supposed to be a racehorse, but this horse was way too skittish to be a racehorse. So its owner donated it to the U.S. Army. And then the U.S. Army said, okay, well, what are we going to do with this horse? So then they said, well, what if we used this horse to make botulinum antitoxin? So that's what they did. So they, what that means is they injected the horse with very, very, very low levels of botulinum toxin, not enough to kill the horse, but enough so that the horse had an immune response to the toxin. They could then take the immune molecules from the horse and then purify them, and that is what botulinum antitoxin is. So a fun fact is that most of the botulinum antitoxin produced between 1970 and 1990 came from this one horse in the U.S. Army. So if you are unfortunate to contract botulism, you can think about the horse first flight and how how the skittish horse is the reason why you are now probably going to be fine in about a month. So now I'm going to switch gears and talk about some poisonous plants. And when I say poisonous plants, you might think of nightshade or foxglove. But the other thing that you might think of is poison ivy. And I am here to tell you that poison ivy, poison oak, and poison sumac are not poisonous. And you might be sitting here thinking, going, what the heck? Yes, they are. I know because I have gotten horrible rashes from these things. But what's interesting is those rashes are not actually technically a poison. They are an allergic reaction. So poison ivy produces a compound called erushiol. But on its own, erushiol is completely harmless. It doesn't actually do any damage to your cells. However, erushiol triggers an allergic reaction in most humans. And this allergic reaction is called allergic contact dermatitis. And that is what actually causes the rash. Interestingly, there are some lucky people who are not allergic to poison ivy and do not get a rash. Unfortunately, most of us are, and I hope that you have never had to experience it. However, if you do, you can have a fun fact to tell your friends that, well, this isn't actually a poison. It's actually an allergy. I don't know if that'll help you very much, but at least you can feel a little bit better for knowing something. If poison ivy isn't poisonous, you might be asking, then what on earth is? Well, lots of things. Everything from poinsettia to oleander, from elderberry to daffodils, all of these things are poisonous. But today I'm going to focus on one of these things, and that is the castor plant. So the castor plant produces a protein called ricin. You might have heard of ricin from spy novels or from that time that the U.S. government accidentally shipped ricin around the country in envelopes. But that aside, the castor plant is widely grown for making castor oil. So if you use castor oil, don't worry. Castor oil is processed in such a way that it does not contain any ricin. However, the mash or the leftover plant product after making castor oil does contain ricin. So now you might be thinking, well, okay, how do I get ricin poisoning? Well, most exposures to ricin are accidental. So the castor plant produces beans, and the beans are often used in as ornamentation for jewelry or for home decoration. Most ricin exposure is from children or adults eating these beans. But the other way that you might be exposed to ricin is if you are the anti-communist Bulgarian dissident Georgi Markov. And in if you are the anti-communist Bulgarian dissident Georgi Markov, and you are in, in and you are in London, England, on September seventh, nineteen seventy-eight. A Bulgarian Secret Service agent, aided by the KGB, stabbed you in the back of the leg with a murder umbrella containing ricin. (laughs) Unfortunately, Georgi Markov died four days later of ricin poisoning, and I hope that you personally are not Georgi Markov. But how did Georgi actually die? Why was ricin able to kill him? Well, ricin is a protein that inactivates ribosomes. And when I say protein, you might be thinking of fish, eggs, cheese, yogurt, that kind of thing. But as scientists, we think of proteins differently. We think of proteins as tools. And proteins are the tools that your cells need to survive and function. So the ribosome translates your genetic information into functional tools. So Emma talked to us about how cancer can happen if your genetic information is damaged. But if your genetic information is not damaged, what it usually does is it contains the information to make these tools or to make these proteins. 
So usually what happens is your genetic information goes into a ribosome, which is like a factory. The factory then translates that genetic information into a tool. What ricin does is ricin gets into this factory and clogs up the works, and it prevents the ribosome from actually doing its job. So when ricin gets into a cell, the genetic information goes to the ribosome, but then nothing happens. No tools are produced. And when no tools are produced, life stops, and I would argue that that is a bad thing. But what's interesting is that the toxicity of ricin really depends on the route of exposure. So the LD50 by ingestion, or if you eat those castor beans, is only 25 milligrams per kilogram. For reference, that means that about five castor beans is enough to put you in the hospital and maybe enough to kill you. However, by injection, like with Georgi Markov, the LD50 is over 10,000-fold less than it is by ingestion. It's only 0.006 milligrams per kilogram. By inhalation, it is similarly small at 0.004 milligrams per kilogram. But the good news is that most ricin poisoning victims actually survive. So by ingestion, which is the most common route of exposure, most patients will recover within a month. However, if you're Georgi Markov and you've been injected by a murder umbrella, you will probably die within days. So we've talked about two poisons that are most definitely harmful, but poisons can also be useful. So every medication that you've ever taken is actually a poison. You just take it at a dose that is low enough that it helps you rather than hurting you. The two poisons that we talked about today, botulinum toxin and ricin, are actually being used right now to solve problems. So you might remember that in the beginning I told you that Botox has an LD50 of 1 nanogram per kilogram, and then I told you that botulinum toxin also has an LD50 of 1 nanogram per kilogram. That's because botulinum toxin is Botox. They are the same thing. We inject the most poisonous substance on earth, hands down, into our faces to prevent wrinkles. So I'll let that sink in for a little bit, and you can do with that information whatever you so choose. (laughs) Ricin, on the other hand, is being used as a targeted cancer therapy. So ricin, because it's so effective at killing cells, if we can target ricin to cancer cells, we can specifically kill those cancer cells, which I think is pretty cool. So now you might be thinking to yourself, okay, this is great and all, but what about radiation? You know, you mentioned uranium in the beginning, and, you know, you told me that if I ate a cup and a half of uranium, I would die. And also, like, why would I ever eat a cup and a half of uranium? What's going on there? Well, Mike is going to tell us about some scientists who might not have eaten a cup and a half of uranium, but they did do some pretty unsafe things. So as, as Emma said, my name is Mike. I'm a fourth-year graduate student in the pharmacology department, and today I'm going to tell you some stories uh, about some scientists who, while they might not have uh, ingested a cup and a half of uranium, they did do uh, some unsafe practices in pursuit of their science. So the three sciences that I'm going to focus on are nuclear physics, organic chemistry, and biomedical sciences. And that last story will actually have a happy ending. So with nuclear physics, the first thing one might think about is radiation poisoning. And what is, ra- what is radiation poisoning? So if you're like me and you're a fan of the Fallout video game series, you might think that when you get radiation poisoning, you'll start growing extra limbs. Or you might turn into a ghoul. However, that's not really what radiation does to the human body. But to understand how radiation affects the human body, we first need to understand what is radiation. So as Emma mentioned in her talk, the sun can emit UV radiation, so it can emit energy that can act on on your body. Well, there are other things like uranium and plutonium that can also emit radioactive energy that can affect the human body. And there are several, several different types of radiation. And depending on how strong the radiation is depends on what type of things it can travel through. So, for example, there are alpha rays, uh, which those can be blocked by paper, and they're not very strong. But there are other things like gamma rays, which is what made the Hulk, X-rays, which what can be used to look at your bones, and neutron rays, which can be emitted from radioactive materials like uranium and plutonium that are very strong. And these are called ionizing radiation. And so what is ionizing radiation? 
Well, to understand that, we have to first understand what an atom is. So atoms are the smallest unit of a chemical species. They're composed of a nucleus, which has protons, which are positively charged, and neutrons, which are neutrally charged. Around the nucleus are electrons, and those are negatively charged, and they balance out the charge from the protons. So if a wave of energy comes in contact with an atom, it can hit an electron and knock the electron away from the nucleus. When this happens, the nucleus will lose a negative charge and become positively charged. This resulting positively charged atom is called an ion, which is why this radiation is known as ionizing radiation. And this is the radiation that comes from uranium and plutonium. So now what really happens when your body gets radiation poisoning? So as Emma talked about before, radiation can cause breaks within your DNA. And that's exactly what happens when you get hit with radiation from uranium. These breaks can result in several things. So the first that we already learned about is that it can result in cell death, specifically in necrosis. And this is what happens when you get radiation burns on your skin. The other thing that can happen, as was mentioned earlier, is that it can actually change your genetic information. When this happens, radiation can cause cancer. And so if we think about the many things that can happen to a person, on exposed skin, you can get, as I mentioned, radiation burns. And actually, there's an interesting story that goes along with this. So when you get radiation burns, much like a sunburn, your skin will turn red. Well, at low levels of radiation, your skin can turn what was used to be called a healthy glow. And so drinking water actually used to be irradiated and was given to people to make them healthier. Uh, But this was back in the the early 1900s, so you don't have to worry about there being any radiation in your drinking water today. Other things that can happen include lung scarring, intestinal bleeding, and you can actually lose all of your white blood cells. And in the lab, scientists routinely use radiation um, to clear out the immune system of, of different organisms. Now, I also mentioned that you can change the actual genetic code with radiation, and this can cause cancer literally everywhere. And so now that we know what radiation can do to the body, let's learn about how we can measure radiation. We need to figure out how much radiation we're being exposed to so we can know what's, what could happen to us. So there are many different units in which radiation can be measured, but the one I'll focus on today is the sievert, which is the biologically effective dose. So how much radiation it takes to actually cause those problems that I was talking about before. The instrument that scientists use to measure radiation is called a Geiger counter. And so we'll just take a a brief look at different doses and what those can do to you. So routinely, radiation is actually measured in millisieverts, which are a thousandth of a sievert. Uh, Here's a scale of some different exposures of radiation. So at 10,000 millisievert, this amount of radiation would be fatal to most humans within weeks. At half that dose, at 5,000, we reach the LD50, which, as Elizabeth just told us, is the amount of radiation at which 50% of the population would die. At less than that, at 1,000 millisievert, we hit the point at which you'd start experiencing radiation burns and nausea. At 350 millisievert, that's the exposure of Chernobyl residents after the time of the Chernobyl disaster. Much lower than that number, we come to 10 millisievert, which is what your body gets during a full-body CT scan. Even lower than that, we get 0.4, 0.1, and 0.001 millisievert, which is what you receive during a mammogram, chest X-ray, or dental X-ray, respectively. And so as you can see, from these routine medical exams, the radiation you're getting is upwards of 50,000 times less than the LD50 for radiation. So to put this into context, you would need to get 500 full-body CT scans all at once without stopping to reach the LD50 of of the radiation. So the next time you need to get a full-body CT scan or an X-ray for a broken bone, don't worry about the radiation you get exposed to. It won't do anything. Now I'm going to get into the stories about scientists who have unfortunately perished in pursuit of their work. And one of the most famous cases of this was during the Manhattan Project, which was a secret government program that the, in which the United States developed the first atomic weapons. During the Manhattan Project, scientists were trying to control nuclear fission. So what is nuclear fission? Nuclear fission occurs 
when substances like uranium and plutonium emit their energy, the energy that's emitted then strikes another piece of uranium or plutonium, which splits that atom, releasing another piece of energy, which can then go on to split other atoms in a chain reaction. There are two words that are important when we talk about fission, and those are critical and supercritical. In a critical mass, this breaking apart of atoms is self-sustaining and constant. In a supercritical situation, the rate of fission events actually increases over time, and so you get more and more energy released as time goes on. So the first story that I'm going to tell you about today involves Harry Daglin, who's actually born right here in Waterbury, Connecticut. So when he was 19, he went off to go study nuclear physics at MIT, and once there, he was recruited by the U.S. government to work on the Manhattan Project. His job was to build a neutron reflector. A neutron reflector, as the name implies, reflects neutrons to increase radioactivity of substances that it surrounds. The way that this works is you can imagine if you have a small piece of uranium, there would be neutrons that would leave, and because it's so small, they would just completely leave the metal and wouldn't be able to react with any other atoms and cause more neutrons to happen. If you used a bigger piece of uranium, those neutrons released would be more easily captured, could strike other atoms, and keep the reaction going. Now, the issue here is you would need an unreasonably large amount of uranium to make something like a nuclear weapon. And so the U.S. government wanted to make reflectors that would trap these neutrons so they could use as small a piece of uranium as possible to make the biggest boom as possible. So one day in the lab, Daglin was stacking reflectors around a plutonium core, and the plutonium core is what's actually radioactive. As he was stacking these reflectors one by one, he got to the point where he was about to add one more reflector, and his Geiger counter went off, telling him that the plutonium core was going to reach a critical state. Realizing that this would not be good for his health, he decided that he was going to move that reflector away from the core. Unfortunately, his hand slipped and he dropped the reflector onto the core, which immediately made the core go critical. And he was exposed to 5,000 millisievert, the LD50, within seconds. He got radiation burns on all of his exposed skin, went into a coma, and unfortunately died 25 days later. And his death was the first death of the Manhattan Project. Now, unfortunately, it was the first death, but it was not the last. His co-worker, uh, Louis Sloten, also met, met the same fate due to radiation poisoning, interestingly, by the same plutonium core, which before it killed two people was called Rufus, but after that was known as the demon core, a little bit more threatening. And so Sloten had this trick that he would perform on this core that became known as tickling the dragon's tail, and that's because he was playing with death as he would use this core. The plutonium core was separated into two halves, and the two halves needed to make contact with each other for the whole core to go critical. He would use a screwdriver to prop up one piece of the core so that it couldn't go critical. He was supposed to use plastic spacers to keep the two pieces of the core apart, but elected to use his screwdriver instead. One day, when he was showing off to his friends that he could separate the core using a screwdriver, his hand slipped. The two pieces of cores connected, and he was exposed to 10,000 millisievert in a second. Just to remind you, that's the exposure that's fatal within weeks. Doctors that treated him said he had 3D sunburn inside his body, and he went into a coma and died nine days later. So there are other scientists who have been exposed to radiation who haven't had as dramatic of deaths. And some other famous radiant scientists include Marie Curie and Rosalind Franklin. So Marie Curie is most famous for discovering radium and polonium, and she also won two Nobel Prizes. And she's the only one to win two Nobel Prizes in two different scientific disciplines. And so Marie Curie would actually handle her radioactive specimens without any protection. She would carry them in her pockets, and she also would write in her notebook how they glowed at night when she put them away in drawers. In fact, her notebook and other research materials are to this day so radioactive that they're locked in lead vaults. 
Rosalind Franklin is another famous scientist who you may know because she was the first one to get an X-ray structure of DNA, which helped Watson and Crick determine the three-dimensional structure. She was exposed to large amounts of high-energy X-rays. These are much higher than the X-rays that are used in routine X-rays for broken bones, so you don't need to worry about this happening to you. But during her career, she was exposed to so many X-rays that she unfortunately got aggressive breast cancer and died just months before the Nobel Prize was given out for her discovery. Now I'm going to switch gears and move from nuclear physics to organic chemistry, where we have two stories. So the first is about a chemist named Carl William Scheele. He was a chemist in the mid to late 1800s. And back in those days, chemists did not have the sophisticated instruments they have now to fully characterize the compounds that they make. So instead of using these instruments, they used their senses. And one sense that Carl liked to use was his sense of taste. And so he would taste every new chemical that he made. Unfortunately for Carl, some of the chemicals and elements that he discovered included mercury and arsenic, all of which he would take a sample of as he discovered them. But probably what he's most famous for discovering is hydrofluoric acid. So some of you may be familiar with hydrofluoric acid because of its ability to dissolve almost anything. And it was actually used in an episode of Breaking Bad to dissolve a body and then ended up dissolving the bathtub that the body was in. This is essentially what happened to Carl's insides upon tasting his new creation of hydrofluoric acid, and he died due to complications uh, with ingestion of this material. So for my next story, we're going to go back to your high school chemistry class and talk all about that base, in this case, terbutalithium. But before we talk about terbutalithium, I want to remind you what a base is. So a base is a chemical that has free electrons that can take hydrogen from its environment. Terbutalithium is a special type of base. It's a very reactive base, so reactive that it will rip hydrogens off of anything nearby. This includes water within the atmosphere around it. What happens when it pulls off this hydrogen is that it releases a massive amount of energy. And because of this, when terbutalithium touches air, it can spontaneously combust and cause large fires if the amount of terbutalithium is large enough. Despite the fact that terbutalithium can spontaneously combust when it touches air, it's routinely used in chemistry labs around the world because of its ability to deprotonate almost any chemical species. Sherry Sanji, a graduate student at UCLA, found out firsthand just how explosive terbutalithium can be. She was setting up a routine chemical reaction but was using 160 milliliters of terbutalithium. That's about half a glass of water. She was using a 60 milliliter syringe to transfer this large volume of terbutalithium into the reaction she had set up in her hood. Unfortunately, when she, was, when she pulled back on the plunger, the plunger came loose from the syringe and terbutalithium spilled onto her clothes and was immediately in contact with the atmosphere. As it touched her clothes, it spontaneously combusted, lighting her clothes and, unfortunately, her on fire. She was wearing no goggles or flame-retardant lab coat, which are now standards in the field to try to avoid something like this from happening again. Her lab mates quickly tried to put, put the fire out, but it was too late. One of them even commented that the skin seemed to be separating from her hands because of the severe burns and she passed away weeks later in the hospital due to complications with the injuries that she had sustained. Now we're going to switch gears again and talk about a story in the biomedical sciences, and this one, I promise you, has a happy ending. We're going to talk about a doctor named Barry Marshall who was, a, who was practicing in Australia. He was interested in studying gastritis, or inflammation of the stomach, and stomach ulcers that usually occur with gastritis. So for a long time, it's been assumed that ulcers are a result of stress. Barry Marshall didn't think so. What he noticed when he was treating people with stomach ulcers is that the ulcers seemed to spread between people like an infection, 
And so he thought it, that it could actually be a bacteria that was causing stomach ulcers and not just the stress of everyday life. So in the lab, he took samples from patients who didn't have stomach ulcers and those who did have stomach ulcers and found that there was a specific bacteria called Helicobacter pylori. So he tried to publish his findings in several journals, but no one believed him. They still thought the ulcers were due to stress. To try to prove that the bacteria was really causing the stomach ulcers, Barry Marshall grew up a culture of the bacteria, drank it, and then waited to see what would happen. Within a week, he developed the symptoms of gastritis and also started developing a stomach ulcer. Realizing that it was the bacteria that was causing the problem, he decided to take antibiotics to see if he could eliminate the bacteria and relieve his symptoms. Within two weeks, the gastritis was gone, there was no sign of a stomach ulcer, and that's why antibiotics to this day are the main course of treatment for stomach ulcers. Because of his findings, his persistence, and his want to drink bacteria, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for his discovery. So after all of these stories, you might be worried about how dangerous science can be. But I'm here to tell you that the community has learned from the past mistakes of the scientists that I've talked about today. There's a wide number of things that scientists use to protect themselves in the lab, all of which are called personal protective equipment, which range from goggles to gloves to blast shields. And because of this, science is actually safer than ever. And you don't have to worry about any of the graduate students sharing their stories with you on this podcast. Hi, everyone. My name is Amanda Lease. Uh, I am not a forensic anthropologist, but as a biological anthropologist, I have forensic anthropology training, and I teach about it. Today, I'm going to teach you about some forensic anthropology methods by walking through and solving some famous cases together. A forensic anthropologist is someone who deals with decomposed, skeletonized, disarticulated, and fragmented remains. Skeletonized means that there's no more soft tissue on the body, and disarticulated means that those bones are no longer held together by anything and can be found in different places. Our forensic anthropologists usually work in relationship with criminal investigations. Although forensic anthropologists and their methods have solved past mysteries, like identifying the lost remains of the Romanovs, the last Russian imperial family, including Princess Anastasia, and help in identifying individuals from mass disasters like 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, and every plane crash ever. Forensic anthropologists provide biological information about human remains to determine who the individual was, how they lived, and how they might have died. The day-to-day life of a forensic anthropologist involves looking at bones, writing reports, and providing those to criminal investigators. The questions that forensic anthropologists try to answer are, first of all, is the bone human? Second of all, who was this individual? What's their age and what's their sex? And how did this person live? What was their lifestyle like? And finally, how might they have died? So say you're walking along in the woods and you find a bone. The first thing you're going to want to know before you call the police um, or maybe the police will help you figure this out, is whether or not this bone is human. The most common bone found in the woods and reported to U.S. officials is actually bear paws. All animals pretty much have the same set of bones, like phalanges, your finger bones. They may have them in different proportions or in different orientations. You might know the saying, form follows function. Well, this is a principle that applies to bone. In other words, The forelimb of a human, dog, bird, and a whale are all homologous structures. They all have the same bones, but they're shaped differently for their different functions. Humans use tools, dogs run, birds fly, and whales swim. They all have the same bones that make up their arms. For someone who is trained to notice these differences, determining if bone is human or not is relatively straightforward. It gets a bit more complicated when remains are fragmented, say if they've been put through a wood chipper. To illustrate this, let's discuss the famous wood chipper case from Connecticut. In 1986, Helen Crafts was murdered by her husband, Richard, who then froze her body, disarticulated it, and fed it into a wood chipper on the shore of Lake Zor. 
This case was the inspiration for the plot of Fargo and episodes of Forensic Files, Law and & Order, and Bones. This case is famous not only because of the gruesome nature of the disposal of the body, but also because it was the first murder conviction in Connecticut without a body. On the shore of the lake, police found a tooth crown, bone chips, 2,660 bleach blonde human hairs, and O-type blood. The blood type was Helle's, and she bleached her hair. But in a court of law, this wouldn't be enough for conviction, even given the fact that Richard had purchased a freezer and rented a wood chipper and was seen with that wood chipper on the shore of Lake Zora by a snowplow driver late in the night, around like 1 o'clock in the morning. But they still need a body, generally. So let's go back to that bear paw for a minute. Humans are able to rotate their thumbs, and though bears can use their paws much like humans can use their hands, they don't have the opposable rotating thumb. Another thing that humans have that make our finger bones distinct are that we have nails and not claws like bears, and our finger bones have distinct wide and flat tips. Among the bone chips at this site, they recovered a human thumb bone. And if I haven't convinced you that you'd be able to tell by its shape that it was human, there was an accompanying nail that was covered in pink nail polish. So what about the rest of the bone fragments? After all, a thumb does not necessarily mean a whole body or a murder. How can a forensic anthropologist look at a bone chip and determine if it's from a human and not an animal? Bone has a dense outer layer called cortical or hard bone and an inner porous layer called trabecular or spongy bone. Human cortical bone is overall less dense than it is in animals. A typical human long bone has a cortical thickness of about a quarter of the area of the bone, while in animals, this makes up about half. Furthermore, there is a distinct shape to the structure of cortical bones, which a forensic anthropologist can examine under a microscope to determine if it's human. Now that we've determined that the bone fragments found on the shore of the lake were human bone fragments, can we tell if the bones were put through a wood chipper? The medical examiner at the time decided that it would be a good idea to feed a pig carcass through the wood chipper to see if the marks and size and shape of the bone fragments that resulted matched the bone fragments they found by the lake. Some of you might remember this occurring in an episode of Bones, where one of the characters was very excited about doing this experiment. The resulting story is that they were able to actually tell. The marks on the bones matched perfectly. We now know how to determine if bone is human. If we have a full skeleton, there is a lot more that a forensic anthropologist can determine. Importantly, especially with skeletal remains, is to find the identity of the individual. Specifically, what was their age and what was their sex? And now we're going to delve into the very sad case of Kaylee Anthony. The remains of a juvenile child were found skeletonized. But I'm going to tell you how exactly forensic anthropologists were able to tell how old that skeleton was. There are two ways to determine how old an individual was at death, dental eruption and epiphyseal union. We all have a set of adult teeth and baby teeth, and we lose them and gain them at particular ages. There are charts that show the timings of these eruptions. The important thing here in this case is that children's second molars typically emerge between 20 and 33 months, which is how old Kaylee Anthony was. Similar to the eruption of our teeth, our bones grow at a fairly dependable rate, and there are similar growth charts that can aid in determining the age of the individual. You might have heard of the baby's soft spot, well, a juvenile skull is in a lot more pieces than in adults. Those soft spots are openings between the plates of bones. Where they meet are called sutures. These sutures fuse together as we grow larger and our brains develop. Similarly, most of our bones start out in more pieces. The tibia, for example, has a shaft and two epiphyseal ends, one at the top and one at the bottom. With age, these fuse to the shaft to form the long bone, and over time, they become obliterated to where you can no longer see the junction. When we take a look at the stage of fusion from the bones recovered, we can clearly see that there is no union and that the epiphysis at the bottom is missing, indicating that the body was that of a two-year-old. With young individuals, such as Kaylee, 
Forensic anthropologists would not be able to ascertain sex from her skeleton. Sex, not gender, cannot be determined with certainty until an individual is more fully developed. In adults, determining the sex from the pelvis is relatively uncomplicated. Females have a wider pelvis with a larger, more circular shape for the passage of a baby. Sexual dimorphism, the physiological differences between males and females, is not quite so simple in the skull. Like all things, sex is somewhat on a spectrum. Some men have more feminine features and vice versa. That being said, there are a number of distinct differences in the shape and features of the skull that can indicate sex. Just to name a few, in males, the neck muscle attachment on the back of the skull is generally more defined. They have heavier brow ridges. And if you feel behind your ears, that bump there is called the mastoid process. In men, it is a lot more pronounced and pendulous than it is in females. Experts from the body farm in Tennessee were called in on this case. You may have heard of this big forensic anthropology center. They testified in court that human remains had at one time been decomposing in the back of Casey Anthony's car. Scientists at this and other body farms take human remains that have been donated and study them in different scenarios which they document over time. They have large acres of land dedicated to the study. They have human remains in refrigerators, in trunks of cars, and buried generally all over. They study the rates of decomposition, the associated maggots and gases, and have provided crime scene investigators with really amazing resources. There are more secrets our bones can tell from beyond the grave than I could possibly mention here. By studying human remains, forensic anthropologists can answer questions about how the person lived and sometimes about how they died. Dental records, more often than not, provide the identity of the remains. In the wood chipper case, the tooth crown found on the shore of the lake was matched to Helle's dental records. She was a Danish flight attendant, and the unique filling found on the tooth crown was made from materials that aren't used in the U.S. Healed fractures and past x-rays are as much identifiers as tattoos. Bone builds up around the break in a very unique callus, and this often remains for the rest of your life. If a missing person had broken their leg playing soccer and human remains are found that have evidence of a healed break, then x-rays can help determine the identification due to the unique remodeling. Medical devices and surgical pins are even more useful in aiding identification, as most of these have serial numbers that can actually be traced back to the individual. During life, your bones react to stress, load, and repetitive motions. For example, many women, myself included, have bunions. This is often caused by wearing poorly fitted shoes with pointed toes. But any occupation that requires repetitive motions like ballet or baseball can also alter your bones. So whether it's habits or age that causes changes like arthritis, your occupation and lifestyle can be written in your bones, and forensic anthropologists take note of all of it. And I know you're all wondering, what about cause of death? Bones can be broken after death or post-mortem, and forensic anthropologists are trained to tell the difference between fractures that have healed or happened at the time of death or were, like I said, post-mortem after death. But there are different types of trauma, and all of these leave very distinct marks on bone. There's blunt force trauma, which is caused by a blunt object like a baseball bat. It usually causes a depression with radiating fractures. Then there's sharp force trauma, which is caused by sharp objects like knives or swords or wood chippers. And then there is ballistic trauma, which is caused by, surprise, surprise, gunshots. To explain a little bit more about one of these, we're going to talk about the assassination of JFK. Although there is a lot of debate surrounding the number of shooters involved in this case, it was forensic anthropologists that determined the single shooter theory after examining the evidence of the bullet holes. There are specific physics involved in the shape and size of bullet holes, which can determine the angle and direction of a shot and the trajectory of a bullet. So the entrance wound is going to be smaller and more circular, and the exit wound is going to be larger, more irregular, and have beveling. And what I mean by beveling is that when the plug of bone is pushed out, the outside of the bone is going to be larger than the inside 
of the bone. It creates this really wonky shape, sort of like a funnel. Based on where the entrance wound is and the shape of the exit wound, in some cases, very, very large pieces are blown off, especially when it's shot at an angle, much like JFK's skull, which the entire brain case was actually blown off. Uh, You're able to really see the direction of the shot. And so when forensic anthropologists examined the reconstruction of JFK's remains, they determined that the shot could not have come from the grassy knoll, but that it must have come from behind and above him, specifically the fourth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. And I hope that I've sort of cleared up any of your conspiracies that might lie therein. I just wanted to leave you with this last final note. There are 206 bones and 32 teeth in the human body. All of these have a story that they can really tell about who you were in life. Thank you for tuning into the this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this special episode. If you are located in or near New Haven, keep an eye out for future Science at Brewery events. Wherever you're located, keep an eye open for future podcasts. There are many people behind this podcast that you never get a chance to hear. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being home to the YJBM and this podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for helping with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to the YJBM editorial board, especially our editors-in-chief, Amelia Hallworth and Devin Washi, and the deputy editors for The Death Issue, Kelsey Castle and Waynig. For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit medicine.yale.edu forward slash YJBM. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. Thank you to the Yale Science Diplomats, especially Hannah Weinberg-Wolf, a fifth-year PhD student in the psychology department and the Amanda Lease, committee chair of science at Brewery, for planning the live version of this event. For more information on YSD, please visit their website, sciencediplomats.sites.yale.edu, or check them out on Facebook. Finally, thanks to you for tuning into this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. We'd love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.